So John 10, 22, you know, Jesus talks about being the shepherd of the sheep in that passage. But in verse 22, it says this. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So, who knows what the feast of dedication is all about? Anybody? Well, there's one hand. Maybe a couple. Okay, Dwight. Well, I imagine if I tell you what its other name is, more hands might go up. Does anybody know what Hanukkah is? Ah, those are the same thing. Okay? So the Feast of Hanukkah is an annual eight-day celebration of the Jews. And do you know what it commemorates? It commemorates the cleansing of the temple after it had been desecrated by the Syrians under Antiochus Epiphanes um, back in one what was it, 167, 165. Um, yep. So <clears throat> between Malachi, you know, the end of the Old Testament and the coming of John the Baptist, there's about 400 years, and those years are oftentimes referred to as the silent years, okay, because there was no prophetic word in Israel. But that doesn't mean that nothing was happening. Historically, a lot happened in those 400 years. Alexander the Great conquered and ruled the known world, and then he died in 323 BC. His empire was divided among his generals. Ptolemy ruled in Egypt, and Seleucus ruled over territory that included Syria. Ptolemaic rule was tolerant of Jewish religious practices, but the Seleucid dynasty eventually won control of Palestine and was not so accommodating of them. All right? So this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, was the Seleucid king who reigned from 175 to 164. He was technically Antiochus IV, um, but he added the title Epiphanes, meaning illustrious one or God manifest, okay? So he was a humble guy. Um, he's infamous for his brutal persecution of the Jews. He outlawed Jewish practice, religious practices, like keeping kosher, you know, food laws and circumcision, and commanded the worship of Zeus and other acts of worship that were blasphemous to faithful Jews. His ultimate act of desecration came in 167 when he raided the temple in Jerusalem, set up an altar to Zeus in the temple, and sacrificed a pig on the altar, okay, which to Jews is, you know, just unclean, right? So terrible blasphemy. So when the Jews expressed their outrage, you know how Antiochus responded? Oh, I'm sorry for offending you. No, he slaughtered a great number of Jews and sold others into slavery. He also ordered Jews to sacrifice to pagan gods and to eat pig's flesh. So what did the Jews do? Well, they took up arms and they fought. Mattathias, a Jewish priest, led the organized resistance along with his five sons. He started a rebellion. He then escaped with his family to the hills. There were many who joined him. And from there, they conducted guerrilla warfare <laughs> against the Seleucids. 
When Mattathias died in 166 BC, his son, Judas Maccabeus, does that name ring a bell? You ever heard that? Um, he took command of the rebellion. Antiochus sent thousands of troops to squash the rebellion, but the Maccabees, as they were called, succeeded in driving them out. And the historical accounts tell how Jewish fighters finally entered Jerusalem in December of 164 BC. The temple was obviously desecrated. It was in shambles. And so the Maccabees cleansed the temple and rededicated it on the 25th day of Kislev, Jewish month of Kislev. And when it came time to relight the menorah, you know that thing with the lights, you know, Hanukkah, they found only one small jar of oil bearing the seal of the high priest. You know, this is like holy oil. And that small, small jar of oil, which would normally last just one day, burned for eight days giving them time to get a new supply of oil. And thus began the, observa or, yeah, the observation of this holiday, this feast or festival, for eight days in honor of that historic victory, the cleansing of the temple and the miracle of the oil. Okay, That's what Hanukkah is all about. It's also called the Feast of Dedication. Also called the Feast of Lights by Josephus because the festival was characterized by the illumination of the synagogues and homes. And here's the thing, it was an occasion of joy and rejoicing. There was no public mourning permitted during this feast. It memorialized the removal of shame. It celebrated the work of God, the honor of his people, the work of God to deliver them so it's a celebration of his work, his intervention on behalf of his people. So does that help at all maybe, if you've been tracking with us in the book of Nehemiah, does that help at all in seeing how thrilling, how encouraging it was for the people to finish building the wall? The temple, or the altar first, back with under Zerubbabel, and the temple, and now under Nehemiah, the wall is complete, and they're going to dedicate it, and that's what we're going to consider this morning in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12. So, see, when they were in exile, it was due to their sin, their idolatry. It was to their shame that the Babylonians came in and just completely destroyed Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, and they were, you know, carted off in exile. So when the temple and the city and the wall lay in ruins, it meant trouble and shame, not joy and honor, okay? So again, a little review here briefly before we dive in. Back in Nehemiah 1.1, this was the occasion for this whole, this whole book. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, actually the same month that, uh, you know, Judas Maccabeus and his gang um, cleanse the temple. So in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, citadel of Persia, that um, Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So at this news, he wept, he mourned for days. 
And he cried out to the Lord with confession of sin, his own sin, sin of his people, pleaded with the Lord that the Lord would intervene and use him to turn the situation around. And the Lord did answer his prayer, and he did it in a miraculous way. So the Persian king, just, you know, pagan king, Artaxerxes, not only let Nehemiah, his cupbearer, go, but gave him his full support and his protection and he author, authorized provisions and supplies for the rebuilding of the wall. So despite lots of obstacles, opposition from local threats, the people had a mind to work and they completed the wall in record time. Again, it was only by God's grace, 52 days. Nehemiah 6.15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So the work of Nehemiah didn't end with the completion of the wall. It had only just begun. He knew that the people of God needed reformed and rebuilt if the city of God was going to be rebuilt and established and flourish. So chapters 1 to 6, we focused on, it focuses on, the rebuilding of the wall. Then in chapters 8 to 10, the reformation of the people. They're reading God's word together, responding to it, confessing their sins, renewing their commitment to keep the covenant. And then at the end of chapter 10, the people promise, we will not neglect the house of our God. Worship of God will be central. God will be central. And then a plan is put into place to repopulate the city. And now we come, our text for this morning, to 12, 27 to 47, which is the climax of this whole book. Okay, the dedication of the wall, the celebration of the people. So as you may know, there's one more chapter Chapter 13, we're going to look at that in two weeks. Next Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, so we're going to take a week off and focus on that theme. Um, but in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll finish Nehemiah in chapter 13. And sadly, the book ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. Okay, it's downhill. Sorry, it's downhill from here. Um, but we're going to finish the book. But we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves, and we sh should definitely not miss the celebration here. It begins by fetching the lead worshipers, all right? So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 12, and our section is verses 20, 27 to 47, all right? We'll begin point number one, lead worshipers, verses 27 to 29. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites, in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites and from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. Okay, who were the Levites? Sorry, lots of background here, but this is all gonna bring us through Palestine to Wilmington, okay, right? What was their calling? Well, there's a lot that could actually be said about the Levites. Uh, Moses was of the tribe of Levi, so was Aaron. Levites are often distinguished from the priests, though. 
though it seems like later on in Israel's history, many were priests. So they were, they were temple servants, servants of the t- tabernacle. Early on, they were in charge of transporting the tabernacle. Um, they camped around it and protected it. They carried the ark. Um, they were given to the priests to serve them. They had a role in ritual cleansing and in the offering of sacrifices. They were also singers and musicians. Asaph was a Levite. Psalm 73, some other psalms. So at the dedication of the temple here in Nehemiah 12, they're bringing the worship leaders, the lead worshipers back into town. Their work was worship. But, let me just make a quick qualify here, don't think that they were just professional worshipers. Oh, I I just do this as my job, okay? They were living in surrounding area, villages, living life as normal citizens like the rest of the people of Israel. Yes, they had this formal role in the worship of God when people gathered, but they also lived lives of worship 24-7 in their villages, serving God in the temple of creation. Farmers, you know, animal husbandry, caring for livestock, taking care of their families, living out Deuteronomy 6. And it's only fitting that there be a unity and consistency between their day jobs and their service in the temple, right? It would be terrible if they were, you know, worshiping some other god, you know, most of the year when they're out in their village and then they come in to lead worship, okay? Because all of life is worship. It was for them. It is for us. So all of life is worship and all of us are called to worship God in all aspects of life, but that doesn't mean we don't need lead worshipers, worship leaders. (laughs) And we have them here, and I hope you join me. We're grateful for them. Okay, how often do you have like a text that would be a pointer to thank those whose gifts and talents are used week by week to lead us in worship, to help like call forth thanks and praise, reminding us of our great God and leading us into his presence to worship him. So we have worship leaders here, Chris Elliott and Josh Prentice and Mark Prentice and Russell Brown and Brian Dietrich. We have musicians here, Beryl and Rob and Steve and Tom and Chelsea and Cheryl and Phil. And actually there's lots of overlap here. Some people are in all of these categories, but anyway. And singers, Tracy and Vicky and Jemmy and Maria. And I hope I haven't forgotten anybody. Did I? Okay, well, she's not here, but yeah. (laughs) And Hannah, thank you. (laughs) So listen, thank you all. I'm thankful. Is anybody else thankful to these folks who lead us in worship? Yep, amen. So listen, imagine all song taken out of your life or taken out of the life of our church. I mean, even if you know, you wish that we had this different style or that different instrument or more of this or less of that. Okay, whatever. Like, imagine it just taken out of your life completely. Our souls would be so much poorer for it. So these lead worshipers, they're not just worship leaders, they are lead worshipers because it flows from inside. It's not just a job. They have a key role in leading us in worship and leading us to worship to give thanks to our great God and Savior. They help us live out Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. Listen to these two texts. 
Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and then this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And what happens when you get filled with the Spirit? You start addressing one another. Have you ever noticed that our songs, a lot of our songs, we're actually addressing each other, encouraging each other. You know, many songs are just praising God, you know. So praise God from whom all blessings flow is kind of bidirectional. Hey, Chris, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Do you see? So addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, so to each other and to the Lord, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So lead worshipers, then and now. Back to Nehemiah 12. The Levites were lead worshipers and they, along with the priests, knew the need, if you're gonna approach God and worship him, they knew the need for purification. So point number two, purification for worship. Look at verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So this is a dedication of the completion of the wall. It's a time of worship and so it's fitting for the people to be purified as they approached and worshiped God. In fact, everyone and everything gets purified. The people, the gates, the wall. Why? Because this was God's city. It's the holy city. God's people, God's gates, God's wall, all dedicated to him. God is holy and we are not. He's the creator. We are his creatures, sinful creatures. He is the king. We are his subjects but oftentimes rebellious. And certainly, naturally, we go astray. So we don't just approach him flippantly as if he's just anybody or nobody. We must approach him in his terms. And he prescribed in the Old Testament the cultic system, the sacrifices and so forth so that people could be clean and holy and approach him. We can't atone for our own sins. So atonement needed to be made for the people so that they could be in his presence. So thankfully, again, just like in the Old Testament with the sacrifices, ultimately in Christ, he provides so that we can approach him. It was sacrificial system in the Old Testament, all foreshadowing the coming of Christ. Remember in Matthew 12, it says that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is even greater than the temple. In fact, he is the new and greater temple. What's a temple for? It's where God and people meet. And with a holy God and unholy people, that's a problem unless you have atonement. So the mercy seat was at the center, right? In the holy of holies. And that curtain, nobody could go in there except the high priest once a year. And that blood better cover the mercy seat because in the Ark of the Covenant was the law and we don't keep the law. We haven't kept it 
perfectly, so we deserve judgment. So you need mercy and atonement. So that's why day of atonement, blood on the mercy seat so that God and people can dwell together. And that's Jesus, isn't it? That's why he died and shed his blood. He is the mercy seat. He is the high priest. He is the new temple. He is the lamb slain for the forgiveness of our sins. So the church is the new Israel. Back in Exodus 19, Listen to this job description given to the people of Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Fast forward to 1 Peter and listen to our job description as the people of God. 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. In fact, now the temple, the place of God's dwelling, is his people. We're a spiritual temple, living temple. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, the city of God, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you hear Exodus 19? Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we, the people of God, are a holy priesthood. What, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, we have a mediatorial role in the world to communicate the truth of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, to proclaim his excellencies, right? To also bear human need to the throne of grace. When you pray for someone, in a sense, you're operating like a priest. To proclaim the mighty deeds of the Lord, to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. All of us do that. We offer bodies as living sacrifices. Language of Romans 12, 1 and 2. So we are called to purify ourselves, to be completely devoted, consecrated to God. We belong to him. He belongs to us. We are his. So we are to purify ourselves regularly by the blood of Jesus and live lives of worship dedicated to our great God and Savior who's made us his people. So purification necessary as we approach to worship this great holy God. Now we come to the dedication ceremony, okay, and the celebration. So point number three is verse 31 all the way down to verse 43. So let's read that together and see what's going on here. The work and the worship. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. So Nehemiah speaking. One, like one of those two great choirs, went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshea and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah. 
and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Malale, Gilale, Ma'e, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. That was the one group. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir, so do you, you get a picture of what's happening here? They're, they're going up on the wall. It's wide enough to walk on. And one choir is going this way and the other choir is going this way. They went to the north and I, Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks, where did they end up? At the temple. They stood in the house of God. And I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maaseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elio and I, Zechariah and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Johohanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Okay, so this is where the money's at. <laughs> this is the climax right here. And I want to read a, a summary from Derek Kidner, commentator. I think this is so helpful. And then we'll look at kind of the contemporary relevance here for us. So listen to this summary here. You can follow along on the screen. There was much more than pageantry in this uh, processional embrace of the city and its walls. It was an extended thanksgiving and a reconsecration, a claiming of these stones for Israel and for God. So actually, if you go back to when they were rebuilding the wall, a lot of that is reiterated here. So they had gone all around and rebuilt the wall and now they're walking and you know, dedicating it all. We should not misunderstand, though, if, er, let me try that again, but we should misunderstand this if we thought of it as the drawing of a sacred circle in some semi-magical sense, for its dominant note was confession of what God had done. And then he notes Psalm 48, walk about Zion, city of God, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Why? so that you guys can feel really good about yourselves and all that you've done? No, that you may tell the next generation that this is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. In other words, this is testimony to his work. He is great. He has done great things. And then Kidner goes on. The expression, the companies which gave thanks, and the similar phrases in verse 38 and 40 translate a single Hebrew word, todot, thanksgivings or confessions, almost as though these choirs were the embodiment of what they sang. So one Thanksgiving went this way, living, breathing, moving, bunch of Thanksgiving went this way, and one went this way. 
So one thanks, yeah, okay, there we go, sorry. Um, I guess that quote's kind of embedded. And eventually both thanksgivings stood in the house of God. Some of the landmarks of verses 38 and following were mentioned in chapter three, the account of the repair work. Every inch of these ramparts had its special memory for one group or another. Nevertheless, the destination was the house of God for the walls were appropriately the circumference, not the focal point of the celebrations. And it was the choirs, not the officials who led the way because worship is primary. So while Ezra the scribe headed the first procession, Nehemiah's place in the other group was after the choir and the climax was offering of great sacrifices with great joy. This time, in contrast to Ezra 3.13, it was no uncertain sound that was heard far off. It was just all joy. Sorry, explanation. Back in Ezra 3, do you remember? They rejoiced when the temple was rebuilt, but some of the old people were crying because in comparison to the former temple, this one was like kind of small and pathetic. But here, there's no weeping. It's all joy. So they went around the wall, ended up at the temple, the centerpiece of the worship of Yahweh. These two groups giving thanks to God, leading the people in that thanksgiving around the city of God to the very presence of God in the temple in order to worship and praise and thank God. Why? Why are they giving thanks? Why are they full of joy? Why did they offer great sacrifices? Where does joy come from? It comes from the works of God. It comes from the grace of God, the intervention of God. So this is actually an interesting thing. I, I hadn't really thought about this until I noted it in a commentary. Can you think of any other religion in the world that offers relational, heartfelt, joyful praise to God? Not Islam not Hinduism, not Buddhism. So listen to James Montgomery Boyce, used to pastor 10th Prez up in Philly. He makes the case that heartfelt loving praise to God is unique to Christianity. He says this, this is not true of other religions. Many use repetitive chants. In some, clergy sing. But generally, the religions of the world are grim things. Christians write hymns, choruses, oratorios. Why is this? Obviously, because Christianity is itself joyous. At least it should be. It's a response to the great acts of God on our behalf, particularly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which secured our salvation. So we worship not in order to rub the lamp or appease the deity or get some good karma or check the religious duty boxes. Glad that's over. What's for lunch? We worship and praise and give thanks because of all God has done, all that he is, all that he's promised to be for us. Like Josh mentioned, he's, he never has forsaken us in the past. He never will in the future. So think back to the establishment of Hanukkah. They dedicated the temple again cleansed it and dedicated it and surely they were rejoicing because the shame had been wiped away and they were celebrating you know freedom from enemies and all this desecration how much greater or think about what happened 
in Nehemiah's day, but how much greater is the work of Christ for us? Listen, you and I, we are all wired as worshipers. Every human being on the planet is wired as a worshiper. It all went haywire when Adam and Eve turned from the creator and fixated on the creation. And we all do the same thing by nature. Romans 125, Paul writes, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's like every human being by nature is an idol, idolater. We put something else in the first place and relegate God to the periphery. We love something else with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And idolatry, worshiping, serving, created things, like all the created things are gifts, are, are kind of sunbeams leading us back to the sun, the source. They're not ends in themselves. God's not a tool to use to get what we want. He is the end of our souls. He's the only thing, the only one who can truly satisfy us. So when we put second things first, when we put created things in the first place, they always disappoint. And they always steal our joy. They may give some pleasure, some joy in the short term, but they will always ultimately disappoint. So you know in, in Jeremiah 2, there's this statement, you know, this people, you know, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what we do when we turn away from God. We, we look the cold, clear, clean, crisp, refreshing fountain of living water in the eye. <laughs> and we say, eh, I, I don't think that's going to really satisfy my soul. And then we are like licking the rusty water off the bottom of a broken cistern that can hold no water. We aren't satisfied and God is dishonored. As if he's not satisfying. Like this ultimate boat of no confidence. You know, that's what the garden was all about. Satan's been selling that bill of goods ever since. So, thankfully, <laughs> Jesus came as the new and greater temple, as the perfect final high priest, as the Passover lamb, as the mercy seat to atone for all of that idolatry so that we could be reconciled to God. All we have to do, what do we, what do we come to the table with? Guilt. <laughs> and he takes our guilt and we get restored, reconciled to relationship with God by his grace through faith in him, trusting in Jesus, turning from our idolatry, our sin, and clinging to Christ. So the work of Christ then enables us, it leads us to worship God like we were wired, intended to in the first place because by the Spirit, what do we have? We get a new heart. The old hard heart gets taken out. New heart that beats after God is the replacement. And then we get to work doing all that we do as worship so that more worship and more work will be born in the lives of others as we are God's hands and feet and we 
are a conduit of his grace and goodness and truth to other people. And what happens? The church, the city of God gets built up. His kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So where does joy come from? Why were the people of God rejoicing in Nehemiah 12? Because God had helped them. He was with them. He enabled them to do this work. He was with Nehemiah in Persia and he directed the heart of Artaxerxes, just piece of cake. Protected them from all the threats. Enabled them to finish the wall. Showed them their sin and restored them and cleansed them and all this work of reformation is happening and so they're so thankful. I mean, imagine how thankful the people, the Jews were when the temple was cleansed at the time of Judas Maccabeus. Yes, like praise God, what defilement and desecration has just been cleansed away. And so here, these folks were singing, look what God has done. It's, it's why the Israelites sang on the far side of the, of the Red Sea because God had delivered them and they just sing in response. So rehearsing the work of God causes worship to well up. We, I mean, that's what we do week by week. Isn't it so easy to forget the work of God and be so caught up in our lives that we don't have any thanks or any praise coming out. All it is is complaint or frustration or anxiety or fear or whatever. And we need to get reoriented. We need some worship leaders to help us, you know, sometimes on the radio in the week or your favorite playlist. Rehearsing the work of God causes the worship and the thanks to well up. We celebrate a greater work every Sunday and every day, really, as Christians. And the, the reason we don't rejoice with great joy like they did is because we've lost sight of or we're out of touch emotionally with the greatness of God's work and the goodness of his grace. So I don't say that as a stick, like, you need to be more thankful. What's wrong with you people, you know? Like, you need to praise more, sing louder. That's going to really help. I'm sure you're going to be like, oh, okay. What, what you need, what I need, is when our praise is low and dull and there's no thanksgiving, we need to go back and look at the work. Rehearse the work. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Who's he preaching to there? He's talking to his own heart. Forget not all his benefits. What is this, you know, weighed down, depressed, discouraged soul doing? Like, bless the Lord. Forget not all his benefits. And he starts to list them. And then he's praising God. We preach to ourselves and rehearse the work so that the thanks and the praise wells up and, and we need the help of others and thankfully we have it. So, Lord, give us an understanding of where joy comes from and give us that joy. Give us thankful hearts as we see what you have done. Verse 43 again, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Why? Because God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's like literal. It was like heard far away. That's how jazzed they were. That's how excited and exuberant. Like if you were, I don't know how far away you'd have to be from Eagle Stadium 
if there was like this awesome play and everybody went nuts, you could probably hear it a ways away, right? And may that happen for you in the playoffs. <laughs> um, so, yes, Lord, cause joy and thanksgiving. Like, revive your people again that we may rejoice in you. May this text not be a stick from behind, but a catalyst for joy, causing thanksgiving and joy to well up in response to God's grace toward us in Christ. Listen, I should also say this, that habits and disciplines are not contrary to spontaneous, authentic joy. They are a servant to it. Okay? If we wait around for spontaneous thanks and rejoicing, it may never come. We need lead in worship, right? We need others to remind us, encourage one another day after day. Like, we can do that for each other. That's what happens when we come in here on Sunday. We're reminded and we're helped. Do you ever need to, like, piggy? It's almost like, um, it's almost like uh, getting oxygen for your soul. You need somebody else to kind of put the thing on you and, oh, I can breathe again. Thank you. So who doesn't, like, this isn't, that, that doesn't mean fake it till you make it. It's, it means I hate when my soul is flat and cold and dry and dull. I want to battle against that. I need help. That's not smile and pretend like you're really joyful. So we fight for faith. We fight for joy because we want to thank God, praise God, bless God, glorify God, and enjoy him now and forever. So who doesn't want to experience the joy of 1 Peter 1.8? I, I love this passage, but it also just makes me feel like, man, I don't experience that that often. Make it more frequent, Lord. Though you have not seen him, Jesus in the flesh, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Anybody want that? Yes, do it, Lord that we would rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We're not going to hell anymore. God hasn't abandoned us or forsaken us. He's not going to in 2022. He didn't in 2020 or 2021 or any other year. He hasn't left us to ourselves. He's with us. He is for us in Christ. He's bending all of his omnipotence for our eternal joy. Do you believe that? He's here. He's at work. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. We are worshipers. We are wired to praise. We're wired for joy. It's going to come from somewhere. You're going to seek it somewhere. Unless you become like a total cynic and a crank and you get your kicks out of punching holes in other people's joy. Some people, that's kind of how they live. So some examples here. I watched this video. Have you ever heard of James Corden, the late night host, I guess he does this thing called carpool karaoke. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So he did one with Paul McCartney, and I would actually encourage you to watch it, because it's interesting, kind of sad, kind of, anyway. Paul McCartney's British, if any of you don't know that. You know, he was a member of the Beatles, um, kind of a pretty famous band at one time. (laughs) And Paul McCartney, you know, they're going through, um, 
London, right? I don't know where this is. I, I don't know. The, anyway, it's in England. Um, and so they're driving through and they're singing some songs and they stopped off at like his, his childhood home and these different things. And it's a little, little different than your average carpool karaoke. But anyway, at one point, they stop at this pub and set up a, a, a um, platform, like a stage behind this curtain. And people are just, you know, having their food and, and drinking their drink. And then all of a sudden, the curtain parts, and there's Paul, Paul McCartney on this impromptu little concert in this little tiny pub that he used to play gigs at way back in the day. Now listen, British people are not the most charismatic folks in the world. They tend to be pretty reserved. You watch that video. Word traveled fast and people were running into that pub and people were just like doing this. British people raising their hands. It must be like Bethel people raising their hands. Um, so it's amazing because of the joy of the Beatles music and I went to eat at this place and Paul McCartney, you know? So I like to hunt, you know? People that hunt tend to be like, you know, pretty, like a dude, you know? Got my camo on, you know? I'm, I'm, I'll come to church, but I'm not gonna really sing, you know, <laughs> just observing. And, you know, there's these videos. I know this now, you know. Um, these guys that, you know, they, they were after this one buck for like three years and they've been hunting it and, you know, finally, they finally arrow this thing. Boom. It's, it's weird, folks. Like, again, I don't know. Do you really want to? I mean, watch the car carpool karaoke. You probably wouldn't be able to find this video anyway, but like some of these reserved kind of stoic dudes are going bananas. Like, awkward, embarrassed. I'm like, I'm almost embarrassed. Like, dude, do you actually put that on YouTube? You look like you're nuts. Like shaking and gushing and like, uh, and, you know, like crying and, you know, high fives and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, like it's pretty cool to get a buck, but holy cow. Or Eagles fans. No, okay, or whatever your team is. No, 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 I'm just bringing this up because I'm saying this is all of us, folks. Pick your team, to, like your favorite team. And some people, okay, I'm not going to point at anybody, but like some of us, you know, maybe think it's weird to raise your hand and fist bump or something like that. But it's like, why do we get so excited at a sports event? Do we ever get that excited about Jesus and what he's done? Like, so anyway, you're free to worship however you see fit. But certainly, it would make sense that we would get more excited about Jesus than about you know, winning the Super Bowl or whatever, when Fly Eagles Fly Go starts to play. And, you know, that's all cool. I'm, it's good. No? <laughs> or some people can gush over a sale. They got a deal that makes their Sunday worship pale in comparison. So listen, Bethel, brothers and sisters, we need to pursue our joy in God if we're going to know great joy and rejoicing and thanksgiving. And if this is the case, our joy is going to be heard far away. 
The light that shines the farthest shines the brightest nearest home. So this kind of joy leads to mission. Remember Acts? The joy of Jerusalem radiating out to the wider world. Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So listen, let's just be done thinking that true joy is, I mean, we're going to need to be reminded of this one too, that true joy is found somewhere else. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, I think one may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion which raises its head in every temptation that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but which would be real delight if only we were allowed to get it. The thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us, a false picture or else a false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real thing. He actually goes on to say, did we have this on there too? Only because he's laid up real goods for us to desire are we able to go wrong by snatching at them in greedy, misdirected ways. The truth is that evil is not a real thing at all, like God. It is simply good spoiled. That is why I say there can be, there can be good without evil, but no evil without good. You know what the biologists mean by a parasite, an animal that lives on another animal. Evil is a parasite. It is there only because good is there for it to spoil and confuse. So listen, the source of all joy in the universe is God. And if we want true and lasting joy, if we want great joy like here in Nehemiah 12, we're only going to find it in God and in the lawful and kind of rightly ordered enjoyment of the pleasures that he provides not as an end in themselves but as like a a means by which we appreciate all the more his goodness his creativity his kindness his abundance so listen c.s lewis also said it we praise what we enjoy so what do you tend to talk about a lot what do you tend to praise what do you tend to commend you know everybody on the plant's a missionary right Everybody on the plants and evangelists, just go to a restaurant and listen. Eavesdrop at a couple tables, and you'll hear people commending things to other people, trying to make converts. Do we ever talk about Jesus like that? So he, Lewis again, also said there's this great little article called A Word About Praising. He says, the Scotch Catechism, you know, the Westminster Catechism, says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Chief means one, but there's two things. How is that? Two sides of the same coin? One and the same? But then we shall know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So the wall was ultimately for worship. The work to rebuild was not an end in itself. Worship is our power, our power, you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength, and it's our purpose. Worship empowers the work. Worship is the end for which we live, glorifying God and commending him to others. 
So in this passage, life got rebuilt, recentered on the worship of God. The people rejoiced. And then they put their money where their mouth was. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Kind of works both ways, right? So last point, really briefly, giving is worship, 44 to 47. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Thank you for leading us in worship. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. They were supporting the work. Giving is worship, and it is for the sake of worship, aimed at producing more worship. So Paul in Philippians 4, he's thanking the Philippians for their gift that they gave him generously, and he calls it worship. Philippians 4.18, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, let's remember all that God has done and allow it to cause thanksgiving and joy to well up. Brothers and sisters, let's seek our joy in God and it will be heard far away. May it be. Let's pray, and then we're going to close with a couple songs. Oh, God, you are so great, and you are worthy to be praised. So even now, I pray that our worship of you, our great God, would flow from our hearts that have been transformed and reminded by your grace. Help us to be um, tenacious in our pursuit of joy in you. Help us, Lord, to rehearse your works. And would you please fill us with thanksgiving and joy that we might glorify your name and that we might have such a witness that would be so authentic and surprising and countercultural that people would not be able not to ask the reason for the hope and the joy that's within us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.